This season of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day is sponsored by Fourth Estate Books. Strudel Noodles and Dumplings by Anya Dunk is the new taste of German cooking. This fresh take on a rather overlooked cuisine is full of gently spiced, smoky and deeply savoury flavours and delicious everyday recipes. If, like me, you're obsessed with sauerkraut, I can personally attest to the fact that you'll love it. You can find out more about strudel, noodles and dumplings at fourthestate.co.uk. Welcome to Season 2 of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. It's good to be back. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. My guest this week is the best-selling novelist, Jessie Burton. Burton burst onto the literary scene with her 2014 debut novel, The Miniaturist, which was published in 38 countries and sold over a million copies. Her second book, The Muse, was a Sunday Times number one bestseller. Those are the kind of achievements most authors dream of. But after graduating from Brasenose College, Oxford, Burton's dream was to be an actor, not a writer. She spent years struggling to make it, then ended up working as a PA in the city, and only then began to write the first of several drafts of the novel that would change her life. Yet it wouldn't always change her life for the better. Burton has, in the past, been open about dealing with anxiety and depression. I have broken down, she wrote two years ago, and now I am breaking open. I remember reading that essay for the first time on your website when you put it up there and I was blown away by its power and the purity of your honesty reading it. And I think that's the first time we got in touch actually because I think it spoke to so many people, that that kind of visceral quality of it. And that's why I'm so delighted to have you on the podcast. (laughs) Thank you for agreeing. No, thank you for having me. As soon as I listened to your first series and the essay that you wrote in The Observer, I was like, I have to talk to Elizabeth about failure. Yeah, I'm so pleased. (laughs) And success, but you know, the flip side. Yeah, definitely. Well, they go so often hand in hand, don't they? I think they do. They have to. Let's start with the success part of it, though. Mm -hmm. I've interviewed a few writers on this podcast, and it's interesting asking authors how they feel when they're writing, whether they feel it's a success as they're writing, or whether it's only after you've published a book that you can really assess that. Well, for me, it's always, well, there's different types of success attached to the book and the process of writing the book. And I think generally when I'm writing, I can't necessarily tell whether or not it's going to be a good book. I mean, the first book I wrote that was published, The Miniaturist, I had no idea. I mean, I honestly had no expectation. And that's actually an incredibly freeing thing. Mm. Because if you've not experienced failure or success, you don't know what you're expecting. You're just actually quite purely attached to the act of writing and the craft of it. So when I was writing it, I certainly didn't think, well, I'm going to sell loads of copies and blah, blah, blah. And I think actually that's quite a dangerous mindset. 
success is a personal perception I think what is successful to you as an artist or to you as a writer may not be the most commercially successful piece of work you produce but it might be the one that you're most proud of so the quantifying of success is actually quite hard I think creatively but I think I tend to veer towards not negative but cautious and self-critical and patient let's see let's see it's not there yet it's not there yet I suppose it's a sort of perfectionism I because I remember once reading that you said that you wrote from a place of doubt and curiosity in fact I think it was the email that you sent to me where you were outlining your failures which we'll get on to (laughs) my essay to you (laughs) yes which is so beautiful I was just saying before we started recording that I'm just tempted to kind of publish it myself in the show notes in its entirety but you said that you wrote from a place of doubt and so therefore when you were being asked all these questions when the miniaturist became this massive global bestseller and people were asking you about your work you felt a bit of a fraud can you explain that yeah I mean I still believe that the best kind of art generally speaking is produced from a place of curiosity and doubt and not knowing something and wanting to probe it and wanting to experiment the kind of novels or the kind of paintings or music that you feel you're being bashed around the head with or, you know, very authoritative pieces of work or didactic pieces of work, they kind of put me off. Mm. So, yes, when The Miniaturist did become more or less of an overnight success, I mean, it was number one quite quickly. Well, it kind of crawled up the charts and then it stayed there. And I don't know, I can't quite remember it exactly how it all happened. But yes, there was this kind of assumption from the public that I was prepared for that and was prepared to sort of issue nuggets of wisdom about how to write or how to make a novel successful or what the history of Amsterdam is because the book is set in 17th century Amsterdam and and it was actually very disorientating to be assumed to be an authority on things suddenly when really through my whole professional life up to that point I'd been very much in a submissive or subordinate position Mm -hmm. so as an actress constantly waiting for the phone to ring constantly waiting for permission and certainly as a PA, often the most effective PAs are the ones who kind of assimilate into the personality of their boss and work for them. So suddenly being the one in control, allegedly, was actually hugely shocking. And I'm, I'm just wary of it even now, you know. I think as soon as you start sort of saying, well, this is what fiction is or this is how to write a book or this is how I do things, you're in danger of kind of calcifying yourself. So... Yeah, it's it's a hard line now to tread because I'll never have that innocence again. Yeah. And is it difficult now that you are so successful and you are so well known and there must be many, many demands on your time? Is it difficult to create the headspace necessary to write? At times, yeah. I think with The Muse, that was one of the worst times because I was trying to deal with the fallout of The Miniaturist, which is what I detailed in that long blog post I wrote which I put there incidentally because I didn't want an editorial intervention and I didn't want to cut it and I didn't want comments I just wanted to present it as a kind of fait accompli and I did find it hard to be the public author you know with a finished work issuing little aphorisms about writing and how I wrote the book and then going home and struggling deeply with a blank page and my own issues of confidence and my own troubled psyche at the time I found that very hard and I suppose 
all that heals or helps heal is time or, you know, familiarity with the situation. So I understand that there will be times when I am my private self working on a project. It's unnamed, you know, it's not finished. It's not a product. Mm. That's a huge difference. And then the public author who has to go on the road like I'm trying to win an election campaign. (laughs) I mean, honestly, it's like take the photos with your baby and, you know, your granny. And it's lovely, but it's very odd. Yes. Well, because writing is such a private thing, even though you're ultimately doing it to connect, I guess. Yeah, that's what's so mad about it. I mean, I don't think I've ever met any published authors or people who wish to be published who are doing it just solely to put it in a drawer at the end of the day. And I think it's disingenuous of people to say that that's what they're doing it. I mean, obviously, you have to do it for yourself. Otherwise, what is the point? But yeah, you're doing it for an audience you're doing it to connect to offer something and everyone writes for different reasons but I guess it's just this weird thing of having to be the physical representative of something that's very metaphysical and experienced away from you you never see anyone really reading your book and also I suppose having to deal with other people's opinions of you and of your work and that brings me on to the first failure you outlined to me which is your failure to grieve. It's a very specific example. And the reason it brings me on to that is because you said this thing to me about how you were at school and you were clearly brilliant at school and academically gifted. And the deputy headmaster, apparently when he awarded the English prize to Jessie, said, if Jessie Burton doesn't do something with her life, what hope do the rest of us have? <laughs> Which, okay, is a lovely thing to say, but my goodness, the pressure I know, no pressure. <laughs> I know, I know. And this is something I've been thinking about recently in my new novel. It's that kind of what you do with young people about that balance between huge expectation when it's just, it should be just warmth and encouragement. And then when it can tip over into a sense that if I don't achieve fully, constantly, glowingly, I'm a failure. Yeah. (laughs) And did your success at school and at passing exams, do you think that kind of replaced the need for you to find your own identity and who you really were? I think so. I think that's been a huge revelation for me over the last two, three years. And sometimes I'm very embarrassed about it that I've got to the age of, well, I was 36 on Friday, but... Happy birthday. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) But that I got to that point and had never perhaps tuned in emotionally. And I do think it has come from a a more or less self-imposed state of doing, doing things that garner applause or garner approval and therefore make me feel safe. I think it's a pattern that was made way back when I was young and doing well at school. And for most children, that's our life, isn't it? Well, there's a family life, but there's also a school life. At age five, we're at school a lot more than probably we're at home. I think I just fell into a pattern that was always rewarding me of working very hard and imaginatively and creatively. I did enjoy school. I loved it. And feeling that there was a formula there of working hard and getting the results and getting everyone's approval and everything, the status quo maintaining. Yeah. I also know my personality is quite, well, what's the word? I don't know. I take things badly. And if I have a, historically speaking, if I've had a fallout with a friend, it's like the end of the world. Mm. I've not always been able to negotiate the grey areas of emotional life. I don't know why. I mean, partly I'm an only child, so I never grew up around 
that sibling conflict where you can bash someone around the head with a Lego brick and then be friends in five hours time or say something mean, but you know that love is there. I think I felt a lot of the love I got was conditional. Yeah. And so when the miniaturist was hugely successful, the biggest success I've ever had, it was like almost too much. Well, I've tried to write a book and oh, it's an international bestseller. What now? (laughs) Who am I? Do you think you also had that thing that I had? Because you mentioned that that you were an only child. I'm Mm. not an only child. My sister's four years older than I am, but she went to boarding school at one point. And so my life was very much a life of adults. Right. And I was always told I was very mature for my age. And I took that as praise. (laughs) And (laughs) and therefore I kind of, I I sort of acted up to that and I tried to be very mature and very kind of grown up Mm. and old and Mm. seeming. And I think people then slightly forgot that I was a child. Yeah, I think if you're displaying kind of intellectual maturity, it can mask, not immaturity, but a kind of vulnerability. Totally. And it can carry on quite seamlessly until, yeah, you are 31 and suddenly you're like, oh my God. Well, until you go until, to Oxford yeah. and and tell me about the first romantic relationship. Yeah, that you well, I mean, I think about this and I try and work out why it was just so seismic for me that this relationship that didn't work. And I think it, it wasn't the first I had. It wasn't my first kind of important relationship but I think it was tied up with leaving home for the first time and also going to such a prestigious place as Oxford it was a huge point of pride and status I'm actually the first person I think in my family to go to university straight from school my mum and dad did it later on I'm from a family of like (laughs) stagehands dancers gamblers ruffians from South London generally although my family probably like no that's not true we had glamour um so yeah there was a lot sort of hinging on that and I went from a comprehensive school in South London which was very diverse and your cultural capital kind of came from oh let's make a film this weekend in Portobello basketball courts or let's do a play or let's you know and suddenly I went to this place where everyone already knew each other that was kind of where your value came from and I quickly fell in with a group and I did have a good time. I don't want to sort of paint a portrait of it being really miserable, but at times it was it was hard to find my gang, my group. And this relationship carried on for three and a half years and, and I think it was more or less my anchor. I made the mistake of not making enough of my own friends. I sort of made all his friends and I found them really interesting, funny, exciting company. But then when it all fell apart, I couldn't accept it. And I think I described it to you as a failure to grieve. Mm. And I think it is tied up with this, firstly, a sort of emotional cul-de-sac I was in or like emotional illiteracy. But also I did perceive it as a failure. I couldn't make this relationship work. I couldn't make him want to be with me. I found that outrageous, (laughs) actually. I just carried on pretending I was fine for a good few years. And actually, what would have been much better would have been putting my hand up and saying, this is awful, and giving validity to those feelings and not thinking they were beneath me intellectually or that one didn't cry tears over a boy. So, yeah, and I think about it, and I think it really did screw me up for quite a long time. Well, because I guess it was one of the first times that you had put in the requisite effort and it hadn't been repaid. Yes, and understanding that you can't control everything, you can't control another person. 
And furthermore, you can let someone into your life who's going to turn it into utter chaos. And that was another thing I didn't realise. Rationally, I could understand, okay, well, I'm not going to see him, I'm not going to be with him. But then the fact that my decision to involve myself with him made such a mess of my life. Yeah. But I could have mitigated those circumstances. I think I could have tried to, well, grieve better, to understand that it was okay to cry, that it was okay to find this painful. But I pathetically thought that it was pathetic to be upset because I had a pattern of not stiff upper lip, but just success, being a success in my life. And so this was an outrageous anomaly. (laughs) And did you keep in touch with him after the breakup or was it one of those brutal ones where... Well, we were still at the same college for a year and I kept seeing him, you know, I I knew he was with other girls. I mean, we were really girls, really. We were still very young. I mean, I, I know we probably were women, but, you know, in terms of an emotional sophistication. And then it went on and on, on and off for another four years. I couldn't get him out of my bloodstream. I couldn't. I didn't know how to. It wasn't healthy. And then I ended up going out with his best friend. Oh, my God. I know, that was stupid. This is an intense (laughs) period of your life. (laughs) And I remember my friend Teasy. Her name is really Victoria, but her brother couldn't pronounce her name when she was young, so she's Teasy. And I remember her saying, don't do this, Jess. Don't go out with this other one. And I was like, but I love him. Of course I didn't. I mean, maybe I did a bit. But I just was, I was so hurt. And I didn't have the emotional faculties to know how to look after myself, to know that it was okay, that I did deserve better treatment. Yeah, That it wasn't healthy to go running off up the road after him, that I was debasing myself that I was offering myself cheaply without dignity. I never made the same mistake again, basically. It's so difficult, isn't it? Because you can be incredibly successful as a woman in a professional or academic capacity. Yeah. And yet for so many of us, it feels as if we believe our ultimate happiness and fulfilment can only come in the guise of a romantic relationship. Yeah. As much as there is public discourse and Instagram discourse (laughs) against that very deep-seated message, I think it's still there. You're still valued if you're in a couple. Girls, women still place a high premium on the attention of a man or the fact that they might be loved in that way. Yeah, there are arguments and there are good examples I've seen of people breaking that. But it's very hard to shake. Where do you think it comes from? Do you think it's the curse of the (laughs) (laughs) rom-com? It's an interesting one. I mean, partly, yes. I think the stories that we are fed, probably our generation, I don't know what girls aged 9 and 10 and 11 are reading in great swathes right now, but they were often American high school or rom-coms where boys and girls seem to sort of date and the pinnacle of a girl's life was being picked. And even if you were the cool gang, like Winona Ryder and Heathers, she still had a boy. I mean, eventually she sort of shakes him off too, so maybe that's a bit more of a radical message. But it's a hard one to shake off. And I know so many women, like you said, who it's like their Achilles heel. And maybe we have to have some Achilles heel 
I don't know. Yes, because we're otherwise we'd be too fabulous. We would be too <laughs> fabulous. But I do remember listening to, I think it was that your interview with Olivia Lang and you yeah. said your friend when yes. she was broken up with by a guy and she's like, what a fool. Yes. Like, what, an, what a loser. He's lost <laughs> out. And I was like, that's so sensible to think like that. Yeah. But it takes a long time to get that confidence. Well, it's sensible and it's radical. It's hugely so radical. So th- this is my friend Tess, who's become the kind of unwitting, <laughs> sort of marginal hero of this podcast because so many people quote it back to me. Yeah. Because I do remember, like, you being so stunned when she said that. Because yeah. I just thought, oh, maybe I can actively make the decision to think that the yeah. next time it happens to me. And I, and I kind of did, and it kind of worked. That's so brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because I do see so many women try and work out what's wrong with them, why this man doesn't want to be with them. But I am getting better and I did, weirdly, parallel to these sort of horrible times I was having, I didn't want to be with him if he didn't want to be with me. There was that going on at the same time, but what I'm saying is that I didn't do any work on myself, basically, and I didn't try and understand that I still had a lot to offer to somebody else. But even, like, I didn't want to offer myself to someone else either. Like, it was just... You see how I just slipped into that? Yes. How I just said that? Yes. That's exactly the problem. Why was I even thinking, like, well, I'll... You know, I'm so brilliant when the right man comes along. Yeah. You did say in your email, to be fair to you, (laughs) to be compassionate to yourself, you did say actually looking for the next boyfriend is never the solution. No. Well, I learned that because I ended up doing that. And no. And so three years ago this November, actually, I broke up with my long term partner of eight years and I absolutely made sure that I did grieve and I wasn't embarrassed by my emotions and I burst into tears when I felt like it and I texted friends when I said I was feeling a bit low. I had conversations with him as well because we wanted to stay friends and we have. And I remember I was doing a show at the National probably at four years before that and my friend was breaking up with her long-term boyfriend and she would turn up at stage door in floods of tears every day. Sometimes she'd do the show crying and I just remember being stunned by this and at first was really annoyed by it and then I realized it was annoyed because I was jealous that she could do that and she thought that that was okay whereas I wouldn't have done it and getting in touch with myself not wanting to sound too touchy-feely was really important I think that's so true and a lot of what you say resonates so deeply with me and the fact that you call it grief is I think spot on Mm. There is no grief quite like heartbreak. And I can say that having experienced the death of people I've loved, Mm. heartbreak is is so tricky to deal with because it does go to the root of who you think you are. Right, exactly. And and ultimately rejection by someone who's still alive. Exactly. You're weighed and judged wanting. It's brutal. And also because you say in the sort of spectrum of grief, the death of a loved one or somebody important to you, there's a sort of rule or set of you know and people treat you differently but heartbreak I mean I read somewhere that it does actually rewire your brain like severe heartbreak can change your brain patterns Mm. I just thought yeah that definitely happened to me I mean I was doing stupid things really dumb things like going out with the best mate that was really (laughs) stupid (laughs) but self-damaging things that I, I would like to think I wouldn't do now you mentioned there that you um, were doing a show at the National. Mm. And that brings us on to what I mentioned in the introduction, that you really, really wanted to be an actor mm-hmm. during this time. 
And I've found that as awful as breakups are, they do sometimes generate really fertile periods of creativity. Yes, <laughs> they certainly do. Was that your experience there? Well, you know, that one was so traumatic. It's only echoing now in my writing. I've, I've found like I can deal with it now. I did break up or another boy dumped me by phone. <laughs> Thanks, you, you know are who these you are. Fools. I know. By phone. We were like, we were in, I think I was in year 12 and he was in year 13. And he said, you know, I don't think we should go out anymore on the phone. I went, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> and then seven months of poetry, like some pretty good poetry, actually. And it won the London School's Poetry Prize. Oh my God. Actually, no, I'm, okay. I'm exaggerating. Runner up. But that's almost better because it leaves room to improve. Exactly, room to improve. So yeah, no, absolutely. And it's actually, and I'm I'm sure you know this, it's quite hard to write about love, to pinpoint love fictionally, to put it into words. Whereas heartbreak, it's kind of fueled English literature, certainly, and European and probably non-Western literature since time began. Rejection and feeling, who am I now? Mm. But you were being, sorry, this is such a terrible link. I was about to say, you were being rejected all the time. You were being rejected left, right and centre. Because you were being an actor and you had to do auditions, which to me, just, just, I hate the thought of having to do an audition. Yeah, I mean, they're not the best. I mean, some people like them. I've spoken to a few directors and casting directors and they often say the best actors are the ones who are bad at the audition, which is, is good to know if anyone's out there worrying that they're not doing good auditions as actors. But yeah, no, I mean, rejection professionally was a huge part of my professional life, yeah. So you spent a lot of your early 20s Yeah, so um, I went to drama school after Oxford. I did a postgraduate at Central School of Speech and Drama and still harbouring those dreams that I was going to be the next Kate Winslet. And it's that realisation as the years progress, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm still not, I'm still not there. And it was very interesting to see as the decade went on, who from my year was hanging on or who was seeing the light or the writing on the wall and adapting. And I think I said to you in the email, I always wrote and I always sort of wrote without much thought, whereas I always wanted to be an actress. So it was like a journey. There was a distance between me and my goal. Yeah, I got an agent and I did some understudy work at the National and Ensemble work, but it never broke out into where I wanted to be. And I guess I am an ambitious person and I... I like working, I like making work, I like making people happy through my work, be it performance or writing. And it was hugely demoralising. And I know in the grand scheme of things, it's not the end of the world. But my family, we didn't have any money. It wasn't like, oh, Jess, you can do some interning for free or whatever. No, I had to go and earn a living and pay my rent like most people do. And it was drawing me away from having time and money to spend on doing projects that I could have done were I to have had a trust fund. Or a, mm. And I think that was a shock when I left Oxford. Oxford was a sort of suspended reality of a perceived meritocracy where everyone was equal. And then, of course, we left. And then I suddenly discovered X was working for Michael Howard, <laughs> Conservative MP. And this person was at The Spectator. And this person was at The Times. And this person was... And I was just like, how? Oh, your godfather. Oh, your mom. You know, and I didn't have any of that. And that kind of fed my anger slightly as well. Of course. <laughs> I was just like, this is so grossly unfair. And I can't imagine what it was like for some other people who couldn't find work like I did as a PA, which paid well. But yeah, it was, you know, I got to age about 27, 28, and I was really miserable because, again, going back to my 
dear deputy head, you know, remembering what promise I had had and what I'd been told I had and feeling deeply that I wasn't going to make good on it. Also, none of my closest friends are are really in publishing or acting. You know, one is a radiologist and one is an early years literacy specialist primary school teacher and they were thriving in their fields and I was drowning in mine. I just felt very much as if I was failing. I was failing. Do you remember one of the worst auditions from that time? Yeah. I mean, there are some really bad ones. I remember... I was probably about 27. There were two. There was one for a French car and I was a mother of like a 10-year-old and that's what starts happening. The women stay age 27 and their children become like age 11 and 12. And I just remember I just didn't get it. But I remember that shock of that ageing. And then the other one was a yoghurt commercial where I had to eat a yoghurt in the audition and because I was having so few commercial auditions, she was, I ate the whole thing. She's like, you're not really supposed to eat it. <laughs> and I was just like trying to look like attractive while stuffing a yacht player, wherever it was in my mouth. And I just thought, what are you doing? You know, and this wasn't even for plays. And there was an audition at Elstree Studios. I think that's in Hertfordshire. I can't remember, but it's out. And running in my lunch break where I was working in a private equity firm, asking someone to cover me, an hour and a half train there, five cursory minutes for one line in EastEnders, and then the train back and hoping, 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 and of course never hearing anything. And I was just so miserable. I went for 12 months without any audition. And then I got a part in a stage adaptation of Persuasion by Jane Austen. I mean, there's a reason why you don't stage Jane Austen. It was so bad because you lose her voice. Yeah. It's just the dialogue. And it was like Midsummer Murders, but in corsets. It was so bad. And I just thought, I'm bored. And I was behaving badly on stage. I was corpsing and trying to make my cast members laugh. And I was just like, Jesse, what are you doing? I have a short attention span. <laughs> so I was just, I was too naughty. So I was actually looking for other jobs. I was thinking maybe I could retrain or maybe I could, I didn't know as what, but just the words retrain. And then I thought I could maybe try and write three days a week or be a PA for three days a week. And the other two days of the working week I could dedicate to writing because I think the writing became that last hope. And I don't mean to be dramatic about it, but I really think what I did was replace that dream of of acting, that dream of a successful acting career, and then replaced it with the possibility of a successful writing career, which is is exactly what I did. I just turned my attention and started the long road of hope again. And is that then what you did? You did three days as a PA and two days writing? No, I, I did actually carry on writing after work. I worked five days a week in jobs. And so I would try and get cover at Christmas time, often or maternity leave. And honestly, some of these jobs I did in the city, I don't even know what the person I was covering did. Like I would just sit there, sit for 10 hours going slowly. And say, I don't know what these people did. you have did. to wear a suit? Yeah. yeah. Well, that was the other thing. I kept trying to sort of, I had to go into the shop and buy like a black skirt or a blouse, but I always ended up buying a red skirt and a flowery blouse because I couldn't bear to buy corporate clothing. It was like an admission. <laughs> And they would often try and contract me permanently and I'd resist constantly because I felt as soon as I do that, then I'm theirs. And I'll yes, I'll have a pension plan, and but I can't, I can't, I can't let go. And so I would work in on the train, I'd write stuff on my phone or I would write stuff during the job, you know, make it look like I was working hard, mm. which is naughty, but also enterprising, like, you know, 
you had to do what you have to do. And then as the first draft began to become a full novel, I would try and find jobs which I was doing two or three weeks and then I'd take two weeks off and live off that money and go back and forth and back and forth. The difference was that through my 20s, I didn't build anything. Because I wanted that dream of acting, I didn't do any other professional stuff that could have built on anything. The only thing I had was to be a PA, which I just, intellectually, I I think I would have found that quite difficult. I think what's amazing about that story you've just told is how much hard work and graft you put into it. And I'm sure you are asked this many times, as I am, about, you know, how do you write a novel? Yeah. And how do you get published? And my answer to it is always, you have to actually write it. <laughs> yes, I, like, me too, yeah. And you sort of have to make the time that you did. That's an, an incredible dedication and yeah. drive that you had. Yes, I am very driven. You are ambitious, you said earlier, yeah. which I think is such an important word for women to claim. Yeah, I want to do things and I, I've never not done them and it's a great quality of mine, but it can also hammer me into the ground sometimes with exhaustion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think, yes, you do have to want it. I went to a party at the weekend and this man said, you know, oh, I've started a novel three or four times and I just sort of think, yeah, but just write the bloody thing then. You know, there's no secret to it. It's the will. You have to want to do it. And it's not very pleasant a lot of the time. It is an exercise in failure because what's in your mind's eye is never ever on the page. You know, in my mind, I've written wonderful books and then they come (laughs) out like, oh my God, that's not what I wanted to say. So yeah, but you see, I had nothing to lose and I was quite desperate. I was quite scared. Because I was scared of losing that self that I had been since I was five. And then, of course, what happened was that self cracked because I just pushed so hard and I had achieved, you know, I wouldn't change anything about The Miniaturist and the subsequent novels because, God, what a wonderful, perfect privilege. But sometimes the best things that happen to you are also the worst or the hardest to process in real time. I think about it and I think I am a deeply different person to how I was. My boyfriend at the time said it. He's like, you have changed. And I said, how have I changed? He's like, well, you're more serious. I was like, oh, no. (laughs) That's a shame. But he said, you've had to deal with a great deal of things and a lot of different responsibilities. And people want things from you and are answerable to you and are looking to you. And you've had to learn how to stand up for yourself. And I guess I'm possibly reaching here, but what that sounds like to me is that you've learned how to set your boundaries. Yeah, better, I would say, in the last sort of 18 months because what happened after the miniatures was a slow... I don't really know what a breakdown is, but I suppose it is. I mean, The Observer, when The Muse came out, the second book, they sort of... (laughs) as the headline. I was like, oh, my God. Like, half of my family didn't even really know what had happened to me. They put that you'd had a breakdown in the headline. Yes, that she had great success. And then, I don't know if they said nervous breakdown. Oh gosh, how very 1950s of them. (laughs) They do. (laughs) I know. But you know, I recently saw a a documentary about Muriel Spark. Kirsty Walk presented this wonderful, The Primes of Muriel Spark. And she was so frank talking about her breakdown. And that gave me great courage because I just thought, well, if she's just like sitting there with her you know, Versace glasses and, you know, amazing clothes, then I can do it, it's fine. Anyway, what I'm saying is, 
boundaries. So that was a complete lack of boundary and a lack of, I suppose, differentiating the private self who was used to failure and the public self who had to be this constant emblem of success. And when I wrote that piece, I was trying to bridge those two together or to try and broach the subject of what success really is. And it kind of happened again. After the Muse book tour, again, it was heavy duty. It was a lot of dates in the UK and then the US and then back to the UK. And I just don't think it's healthy for anyone to have to talk about themselves. I know I'm doing this with you, but this is fine. But I mean, publicly with people just sort of owning you, I think it's very damaging to the creative drive. And the same thing happened again. I got very anxious. We had to pull me out of big events because all the smaller ones had accumulated to make me very burned out again. So for me, my anxiety comes when I'm tired and just worn out and I don't have my faculties around me. So this time around, I've got a book coming out in September for the children. And I think the publishers are much more aware. And as they are, I think, for all authors, more. I think people are talking a bit more about it. There just has to be a limit to what you do. Will you explain to me the form that your anxiety takes? Okay, The worst physically I can remember was the September of 2016 when I was doing an event with Alex Clark, lovely woman, and we were sitting and it was for Q Festival and she was asking me what my book, can you just tell us a bit about Muse? And I just remember my ears just ringing hugely like this high-pitched ringing, my heart yammering, my palms very sweaty and I couldn't remember really what my book was about and I remember... I swallow, that all happens. And then there's a huge sense of guilt and embarrassment that people have come to hear me and all I want to do is bolt. Those are very immediate symptoms. But behind the scenes, I think I've always been quite anxious person, but I didn't really know what it was. And I think in some ways, I'm quite glad my parents didn't have it diagnosed. I didn't become stigmatised with anything. It was just the who am I feeling. But a doctor when I was about 15... I took myself to him because I was getting sick of these derealisation, they're called, where you just sort of step out of your surroundings. You challenge the reality of them. Your mind is like, well, who am I? Who is this voice in my mind? I would recognise your face, but I wouldn't know what you were. It feels like everything's a bit like the Truman Show or the eternal sunshine of a spotless mind is one of the closest things I've seen to how it feels. And it's an incredibly frightening feeling. And I've had that since I was about nine or ten. And then it's the huge fear of doing something embarrassing and also intrusive thoughts. Those were hugely difficult for me to handle when I was growing up. I would sort of think, and I think Bryony Gordon's talked about these a lot, and it is something that is to do with OCD. I've never been officially diagnosed with that. But you think hugely transgressive thoughts. So I used to be very frightened that I had the capacity to kill my parents. So aged 11, 12, and this apparently happens with kids, some kids when you hit puberty, there's this sudden awareness of your power. God, that's so interesting. Yeah. And you suddenly realise, oh God, well, I could go to the kitchen and get a knife and do this. And in my mind, because I have a very overactive imagination that catastrophizes as much as anything, I could see that I was, oh, well, I could go into the room and then I could do that. And then I could put them in bin bags and then I could go, you know, and I was horrified that the mind had the capacity to think these things. And eventually I, I just hated myself so much that I just didn't give myself a break I didn't laugh at it or I didn't take the sting out of it. I was just mortified. 
And I eventually told my mum, and <laughs> I just can't imagine if I had a kid, like, come up, like, mum, I'm really nervous, I'm going to kill you in the night. And she just said, well, you're not going to do that, are you? And I think, I feel like I had to tell her that, at least warn so her in advance. So it power. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if I'm at the door yeah. with the yeah. knife, yeah. you know. But yeah, try and lose its power. But I think my anxiety is just these melee of things. It's it, So interesting that you talk about catastrophizing, because mm-hmm. I think I do that hugely in intimate relationships something will happen and I'll invent an anxiety driven narrative in my head that is the worst possible case scenario (laughs) what might be going on right (laughs) and I think what's been interesting about it of late is that sometimes I confuse that because it's so convincing you're right the narratives you spool yourself in your own head can be so convincing that it's really difficult to detach that narrative from a what is actually going on and b your own instinct yeah because there's this rightly there's this whole conversation to be had about women particularly women but also men being able to drown out the white noise of society and being able to listen and trust their own instinct yeah but it's so hard to do if you have this competing if your instinct is like to put your mum in a bin bag I know how do you separate the two I know it's like how do you trust which bit do you trust how do you trust anyone (laughs) <laughs> well, that's a big question. I know, and it is hard. I mean, I've learned a bit more to be like, oh yeah, here comes the intrusive thought, but I just know that I don't really mean that and it's just my mind, it's fine. And I have got a lot better in managing that. But in terms of persuading yourself of things that aren't real or aren't really happening, getting yourself tied in a knot without checking in with someone as to what their reality is. I mean, it's good to talk, I guess, and have the sting taken out of all of those things. But it's the kind of whole conundrum of life, isn't it? Clashing realities and the stories we tell ourselves for so long and then they don't serve us anymore and you have to learn how to tell yourself a different story because everything is telling yourself a story. So I know what you're saying is the dodgy narrative actually part of my instinct is yeah. it part of my subconscious protecting me? But maybe you're making those stories up because you're frightened of being hurt and you want to get there first. Oh, Jessie. <laughs> you know, you're right. You're right. It's it's funny, isn't it? Because you make up the story and then you make up the excuse to... Yeah, to... I do it too. Like preempting. It's a survival mechanism. Yeah. It, you just don't want to be hurt. So you're kind of running your self if you like through that scenario so that you're ready if it does happen but what happens is it's not going to happen so Do why waste now. well yeah. yeah and why waste the time the essay that we've been speaking about which is yeah. it's still available on your website it's still isn't there. it <laughs> yeah it, i honestly honestly advise everyone to read it i thought it was such an amazing piece of writing and you had photos accompanying it which yes. i thought was so it was a very powerful thing to do Because you were talking about how you looked in those photos and what you see when you look at them. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think the first one was me at my desk in the middle of the, well, depression. And it's awful. I mean, it's really bad as well because on Google Images you can still (laughs) see it. I'm like, oh my God, why did I do that? I mean, I hate them all anyway. They're all bloody awful, those photos. I'm so much better at selfies. I don't oh, know. I know. What, it's the angle. It? It's, well, yeah. I mean, because we're both relatively tall. And so, <laughs> and it's just all about angles. I know. And that's another thing, incidentally, about being a novelist, when you're suddenly expected to know how to dress or how to awful. look. It's just bullshit. Like, if you're yeah. an actress, you get all the full works. Anyway, that's an aside. 
Yeah, that photo I did decide to put because I felt quite that people had an idea of who I was, which is fine. You sort of clutch at straws. And I think people read the, went to Oxford, did you know. And yes, that's a huge part of who I am, but it's actually a very minor point on my life CV. And I just wanted to put that photo up and it's me looking pretty dead behind the eyes, to be honest with you. So that was January of 2015. And by March, I was diagnosed with depression. And I just looked dead in the eyes. I just looked pale and miserable. I'd taken myself off to, I think, Gran Canaria, because I thought there might be some sun in January. I was, you know, I took myself off on a, like, flight and it was so cold and I'd taken summer linens and cotton and I just had to wear all my clothes all all the time. And the cook took pity on me and would leave my food outside my door because I didn't want to sit. It was a bit like an Ian Forster novel where everyone had to sit for dinner together. I hate that so much. I was, I was like, <laughs> actually, no. I was like, please, no. Let me just eat in silence. Those months, I think, were my lowest point because by March was when... In February, I think I burst into tears on the phone to my agent saying, I can't do this anymore. And she sort of swept into action and cancelled things that I had all going on that summer that were pressurising me. And then the last photo is me in Colombia in January of the next year, 2016. And I was newly single. And I was, I suppose you could say I was single for the first time as a sort of proper adult. Mm. And I had financial independence, which was a huge help. But I'd finished the muse. I was happy alone. I was in the Colombian rainforest and I was just so content. I genuinely, I think, I keep thinking back to those days and just trying to remember how it was to feel like that, just purely in the moment. I don't think I live very much in the moment. It's very hard to, and I don't think we should beat ourselves up too much about not doing it because we're always constantly being told to, but it's bloody hard. But in those days, there was nothing to do but just be. And I think it helps when you're out of your normal context. And I think I just came to realise, you know, I'm never going to be the best novelist in the world. That doesn't exist. Neither am I going to be the worst. And there are going to be people who hate my work and there are going to be people who love it. And all that really matters is that I'm well and the people I love are well. And I know that I had that lovely moral lesson given to me because I did become very successful financially and also professionally. And that allowed me to realise what really mattered, Mm. which was being healthy and loved and loving those people and and making sure they're all all right. Which is a bit pious, I suppose, but... No, it's not pious at all because it comes from actual experience. Yeah. It comes from hard-won life that you've been through. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I have been listening to other people on this, on your podcast, thinking, well, you know, I haven't had that, I haven't had it that tough. (laughs) But, I mean, I think... There is no hierarchy of suffering. No, I know, I know. Can I ask you about Frida Kahlo? Go for it. Because because I'm a big fan of yours on Instagram, (laughs) so I know that she's a seminal influence on you. Yeah, And she's someone who, for me, is very interesting as a female artist because of the attention she pays her own body. Mm. And I wanted to ask you about you and your body and how you feel about it in the context of us just having discussed like how horrible it is having your photo taken. How horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, she she's so hugely inspirational to me. I mean, there's just so many reasons why. And I suppose one of the main reasons is because she took what was perceived disability, her leg, her fractured spine, her 
permanently damaged reproductive organs and she made them into an act of defiance and made people appreciate her for lots of other things rather than pity her. I haven't thought that much about how to present my body, if you like, or my face publicly because I feel that it's sort of been done without much of my permission in the first place. There's just always this assumption that you'll have your photo taken and you don't have any editorial control over that picture. I've had photo shoots where they've put on so much makeup on my face that I look like Bette Lynch. No shade to Bette Lynch, she was a great icon, but I'm not Bette Lynch. I'm feeling a bit that's out of my control and I think that's why I do enjoy Instagram because... Yes, I can curate the image a bit more and show the colours I love and the jewellery I love. And I think what's most important to me as a woman who makes art is to show that you can be interested in fashion and decorate yourself and narrate yourself, narrate yourself through your body and also be taken seriously as an intellectual And I will always do that, regardless of what the press will do about which image and all of that. It's so binary, that idea that, you know, we have to be wearing sackcloth and never wash our faces and sort of, (laughs) it's just totally anathema to me, that. But I haven't thought in great depth. I think in some ways I I am lucky because I'm not picked on for my weight. I'm not oversized or anything like that. And I don't tend to get too much attention that way. I don't know why. I love that thing you said about narrating yourself through your own body. That makes total sense to me. It just feels to me like women aren't going to be let off the hook with it, so we might as well go full hog with it. A male writer can just turn up in a scruffy old shirt and they'll think it's, oh, well, you know, he's been thinking deep thoughts that day yeah (laughs) you know if we do it's like oh hello letting yourself go go. (laughs) exactly (laughs) but again that's an interesting thing because I must have been conditioned from a really young age to love lipstick and mascara and the full wall paint and I've got a four and a half well she's five tomorrow my goddaughter she loves it she wants um highlighter pens we don't do full varnish but she wants the highlighter pens on her nails she's got I went to see her today she's got a big Frida crown And it's not anything her parents have done. So we don't know where it comes from. And she's only just started school. So it's that conundrum. What do you think you have learned from your three episodes of failure? Do you think you know yourself better as a result? Yeah, I do. I think I've come to know myself a lot better maybe in the last two and a half years. It's been super accelerated (laughs) self-knowledge. Whereas I think I just drifted. I just sort of was hitting side to side as I moved through my 20s, which I think is fairly normal. I mean, I feel that there's a kind of feeling that young women think they have to know everything and be everything, and they don't. And I've much more enjoyed my 30s than I did my 20s. I think I've learned that it's okay to fail. It's essential to fail, because how else are you going to learn from mistakes so do take those risks do try something that you don't know whether you'll succeed at and it's something actually to quote Donald Glover of all people (laughs) but he said he hires for his tv show only people who've never written for tv who don't know the rules so they don't know whether what they're doing is going to be a catastrophe so there's just that freedom of expression So I think I've learned to try and retain some of that innocence of those TV writers or me before the miniatures was successful. And I've learned it's okay to grieve. It's okay 
to feel rubbish. Also, to understand that not everyone is going to understand what you're going through and you can't blame them for that. And you can't really change other people, but you can change yourself and your setting and your scenario. And I'd had a therapist post-miniaturist, which was incredibly helpful. And I still think about a lot of what came up in those sessions with her, and I think it's informed my fiction. And what I'm writing now definitely is about this kind of concept of failure. And I write, all women deserve the privilege of failure, but few women get it. And I think I write something like, self-doubt in women is the plague of locusts. <laughs> I cannot wait to read this book. Yeah. What's it, it called? Well, I, I haven't got a title today. at the moment. You failed. Failed to write a <laughs> I title. I failed to write a title. I'm so bad at titles. <laughs> Me too. I, oh, right, good. In other words, because I always write, like, this is a great title. And then and then people will come up like, so, the title. And I'm like, you hate it, don't you? I've never been able to name any of my books. I mean, it's fun in fiction. I don't know if you find this. You like writing characters who are perhaps... I think you write more sort of nuanced fiction than me. Mine is sort of like these sort of theatrical characters who are kind of archetypes or fantasy types. Certainly in The Muse, there was this character called Marjorie Quick, who's kind of my ideal older self, who sort of doesn't really care what people think, but not in a really obnoxious way. And I would like to be more like that. And I do like creating those characters who are kind of aspirational to that behaviour. Because I do have quite a lot of young women reading my books. So it's always heartening to me when they stick to a character who isn't worried about everyone liking her. and Because, you know, these are all mistakes I have made. Yeah. The need to please people, the need to put up a good front, a cool, professional, happy, blah. You know, it's not the reality. And I would just like to point out, because we are drawing to a close, although as ever when I talk to you, I feel I could talk to you for many decades. <laughs> that was quick. I know, it's gone so quickly. <laughs> I just want to point out to people listening that you did end up with a part in the TV adaptation <laughs> of The Miniaturist. I did. So you ended up creating your own role yeah. as an actor, but by becoming this best-selling novelist, which yeah. is a beautiful kind of narrative serendipity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. You want to you wanna be a... You want to be on the TV? Write the novel first. <laughs> but that's like what Phoebe, because I loved Phoebe's one. She was actually the same year as my ex-boyfriend at RADA. And she did the thing, didn't she? Yeah. No one was giving her the parts, so she wrote them herself. Exactly. This is Phoebe Wallerbridge. Yeah, who, sorry. Um, I totally agree with that. And actually, You can't wait around for permission from people. Completely. No one gave me permission to write that book. Doing the podcast has actually been really interesting for me because it's the first thing I've done over which I've had complete creative control. Yeah. And it was just something I sort of thought was interesting. I just went ahead and, and yeah, did exactly. it. And it's been such a good lesson yeah. uh, that that kind of thing is possible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that if you're thinking it, the chances are that other people will connect to it too. Yeah. You just have to be honest and come from yeah. a place of truth. Exactly. Well, you have to take the risks. You have to make those leaps of faith. But the ultimate beauty is that having faith in yourself is just a hugely radical act. Yes, Jessie Burton, that is such a perfect place to end on. I'm going to let you go and play with your lovely grey and white cat, Margot. <laughs> and I just want to thank you so much for coming on this podcast no. and talking so eloquently and so intelligently about failure and success. Oh, thank you for having me. 